It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On March 30th, 1981, a man took six shots at President Ronald Reagan. The attack, which wounded the president and several others, was broadcast across all major news channels almost immediately. At the time, 55-year-old Joanne Hinckley was home in Evergreen, Colorado. She was thinking about her 25-year-old son, John, as she ironed some of her husband's shirts. Joanne flipped on the television set as she ironed, hoping for some mundane background noise. Instead, the words special report flashed across the screen. Having lived through the JFK assassination, she couldn't help but think to herself, oh no, not again. The reporters described the assailant as a light-haired white male in his 20s. Joanne immediately went to call her husband to make sure he had seen the news. But before she got a chance to dial, her phone rang. On the other end of the line, a voice said, Mrs. Hinckley, this is the Washington Post. Is your television set on? The voice continued, Do you know that your son, John, has been identified as the man who fired at the president? Joanne Hinckley's first thought was that it was a prank call. Who could be so cruel? But deep down, she was terrified. The voice might be right. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love— let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we explored the upbringing, background, and disturbing philosophies of John Hinckley Jr., we looked at how an obsession with the movie Taxi Driver and actress Jodie Foster eventually led Hinckley to attempt the assassination of President Ronald Reagan. This week will follow his subsequent trial for that crime and see how Hinckley's defense 
forever changed one of the most controversial elements of the American judicial system, the insanity plea. On August 25, 1981, 26-year-old John Hinckley Jr. was charged in a 13-count federal grand jury indictment, including a charge of attempting to assassinate President Reagan. Additional charges included the assault and intent to kill White House Press Secretary James Brady, who was shot in the head, Secret Service Agent Timothy J. McCarthy, who was shot in the stomach, and D.C. Police Officer Thomas K. Delahanty, who was hit in the neck. Each of the four charges carried a maximum penalty of life in prison. Hinckley's parents, although shocked and devastated, stood steadfastly by their youngest son. Joanne and John Hinckley Sr. said to the press, We pray that not only the innocent individuals injured in this misfortune recover completely, but that the best result is obtained for our troubled son as well. We love him and will continue to stand by him. Despite their strained relationship, Hinckley's parents still felt deep sympathy and love for their son. They would do whatever they could to help him. They provided him with the best lawyers money could buy. The wealthy Hinckley's retained the services of one of the most respected and expensive criminal law firms in Washington, Williams & Connolly. Vincent J. Fuller, one of the star lawyers at the firm, served as Hinckley's lead defense attorney. Fuller and the Hinckley's were prepared to fight tooth and nail for his innocence, but the prosecution was far from convinced. D.C. homicide detective Eddie Myers and the FBI agents who interviewed John Hinckley Jr. immediately following the shooting were certain they had an open and shut case. They were ready to send Hinckley to prison for the rest of his life. But they soon realized the case was much more complicated than they imagined. On May 27, 1981, while confined at the Quantico Marine Base, Hinckley ingested an overdose of Tylenol and Valium in an unsuccessful suicide attempt. This only increased speculation about his mental health. He was transferred to a federal penitentiary in Butner, North Carolina, which had the resources to perform extensive mental health examinations. He underwent several psychological tests to determine his level of competence to stand trial. The press had posited for months that Hinckley would use the insanity defense at trial, although his defense attorney claimed no decision had been made. However, on September 29, 1981, four months after his suicide attempt, it was revealed that the press's speculation was right all along. After multiple psychiatric examinations, the defense announced that Hinckley would plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Because of this, his lawyers petitioned for a split trial, with the first part devoted to testimony about the shooting and the second half to discussing the insanity plea. Before Hinckley's trial, the insanity plea was used in less than 2% of all felony cases and proved unsuccessful in 75% of them. And yet, Hinckley's lawyers decided that pleading not guilty by reason of insanity was the best option they had for their client. 
This was because, at the time, the insanity defense had a strategic advantage. The burden of proof was on the prosecution. In order to send Hinckley to jail, the government had to prove that he was sane enough to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct when he pulled the trigger. Two months after the plea was introduced, in November of 1981, Hinckley attempted suicide a second time. He tried to hang himself in his cell with a noose fashioned from tied-together clothing. But once again, he was unsuccessful. There was no escaping the court proceedings. The case, presided over by Judge Barrington Parker, began in Washington, D.C. on May 4, 1982, just over a year after the assassination attempt. It was announced pre-trial that neither the president nor Hinckley himself would testify. Additionally, Press Secretary James Brady, who was still recuperating from a brain injury caused by the shoot, would not be called. Without these key witnesses, it would be up to medical professionals, law enforcement, and character witnesses to set the scene. The jury was comprised of seven women and five men. One of the women held a degree in educational psychology, specializing in problems of socially maladjusted persons. Due to the very public nature of the crime, the prosecutors repeatedly asked for the jury to be sequestered. They were concerned that with all the press coverage, there was no way the jury could remain unbiased. However, the requests were denied. The court put extreme security measures in place for the trial. Reporters and other observers were all required to pass through metal detectors and X-ray machines before standing in line to take their seats. Anxious spectators packed the room, nervously chatting and offering thoughts to each other about what to expect. But when the judge and jury entered the room, a hush fell over the curious crowd. Lead U.S. Attorney Roger M. Edelman was described by a former classmate as tall, imposing, and yet somewhat reserved. He was no novice. In addition to prosecuting various homicides, kidnappings, and robberies, the biggest trial Edelman had worked on prior to the Hinckley case was also a political shooting. He tried a man who shot U.S. Senator John Stennis in 1973 in front of his house. In his opening statement, Edelman laid out what the government believed was a clear-cut case. The assassination attempt was premeditated. Hinckley purchased guns and explosive ammunition in advance of the crime. He practiced target shooting at a range, and there was evidence of a potential thwarted attempt to find President Jimmy Carter in Nashville. Hinckley had also laid out his plans in several love letters to Jodie Foster. This all directly contradicted the defense's insanity claims. Edelman explained to the jury that they would hear from several psychiatrists who would all insist that Hinckley was in complete control of his actions when he pulled the trigger. He was seeking an easy route to fame. He emphasized the fact that Hinckley committed his crime in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses and dozens of reporters and news cameras. Thousands more across the nation saw his actions and he wanted it that way. To drive home that point, 
Edelman played for the jury a videotape of the scene outside the Washington Hilton Hotel. Everyone in the courtroom watched as Hinckley fired his weapon. As the tape played, several people in the courtroom appeared distressed, and a few even covered their eyes, but it was impossible to ignore what had just been shown to the court, undeniable and disturbing proof that Hinckley tried to murder the president in cold blood. Coming up, the defense tries to prove there's more than one way to view the videotape. Now back to the story. In May of 1982, 26-year-old John Hinckley Jr. stood trial for the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. Hinckley pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. The prosecution had yet to question a single witness, and already they seemed to be winning, simply by showing the jury videotape of the crime. But U.S. Attorney Roger M. Edelman was just getting started. First, he called two of the shooting victims to the stand, police officer Thomas Delahanty and Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy. McCarthy had returned to active duty after the shooting, but Delahanty was forced to retire on disability due to nerve damage from his wounds. McCarthy explained to the court that he heard gunshots and, quote, tried to place myself between the apparent danger and the president. Edelman honed in on this point as a way to prove Hinckley's mental clarity. He'd purposefully targeted the president's protective detail. Hinckley mowed down those two men to clear the way to his intended target. However, the prosecution's key witness was Dr. Park Elliott Dietz, who had personally evaluated Hinckley. Dietz was a 33-year-old forensic psychiatrist and a member of the Harvard Medical School faculty. Dietz didn't believe Hinckley was mentally ill. He described the defendant as spoiled, lazy, self-centered, and fascinated by fame. More importantly, he found that Hinckley was capable of deliberation, planning, and had the ability to choose or not choose to commit a crime. In fact, Dietz believed Hinckley had never been psychotic at any time. Instead, Dietz had concluded Hinckley turned to high publicity crime because he thought it was the only way he could be famous. Dietz reminded the jury that Hinckley had spent time in Los Angeles trying to be a songwriter. He was clearly interested in being famous. In addition to impressing Jodie Foster, shooting the president was a path to that fame. The doctor also believed Hinckley was capable of rational decision-making when it came to committing acts of violence. When Hinckley was arrested in Nashville for possessing firearms, he hadn't drawn a gun. Instead, he'd made a decision to reserve his actions for a better opportunity, for Reagan's assassination. This proved that Hinckley possessed self-control and had an understanding of the law, on the day of the Reagan shooting, he'd simply chosen to ignore it. Dietz continued, On March 30, 1981, he decided where to go for breakfast, what to eat. He decided to buy a newspaper, to shower. There was no voice commanding him to do that. He decided, as he tells us, to go to the Hilton to check out 
how close he could get. Dietz explained, We know from the facts that he chose his bullets, that he loaded his revolver. He is controlling his conduct, is taking the time to write the Jody letter. A man driven by passion, by uncontrollable forces, is not often inclined to take the time to write a letter to explain what this is about. And he claims he spent 20 to 35 minutes writing that letter. Defense attorney Vincent J. Fuller tried to counter some of these points. Could Dietz truly classify John Hinckley Jr. as a man without any mental troubles whatsoever? Did his stalking behavior indicate that something was amiss? Ultimately, Dietz conceded that Hinckley may have a personality disorder. However, he continued to argue that the series of rational decisions that Hinckley made up to the moment of the crime were evidence of his ability to tell right from wrong, and thus proof of his legal sanity. To further corroborate Dietz, Edelman called another doctor to the stand, 29-year-old Dr. Sally A.C. Johnson. Johnson was a staff psychiatrist at the Federal Correctional Institution where Hinckley was held pre-trial. She personally interviewed Hinckley 55 times over four months, more than any other psychiatrist. Johnson was considered an objective observer because she was assigned to Hinckley's case by the court, not at the request of the prosecution or defense. Therefore, she had no obvious bias, which made her all the more valuable to the prosecution. She could corroborate Dietz's testimony and hammer Edelman's points home to the jury without partiality. Johnson testified that, Although Hinckley was initially suspicious of her, he was generally honest and open. She told the jury that she probably was the first woman with whom he'd ever discussed deeply personal matters. Hinckley grew comfortable enough with Johnson that he composed a poem for her titled, A Poem for My Favorite Pregnant Psychiatrist. The poem was about eating hamburgers and watching mermaids at the beach. Johnson said, I think John did want me to like him as a person. Johnson added that once Hinckley trusted her, he confided that while he fantasized about actress Jodie Foster, he knew he would never have a personal relationship with her. Johnson concluded through all of her interactions with Hinckley that he was a person capable of making logical choices and decisions. She believed he was in control of his behavior and criminally responsible for his attack on the president. The jury was stoic, but the courtroom seemed to murmur an agreement. Over the course of three weeks, the prosecution called 16 witnesses and introduced more than 100 pieces of evidence. The jury saw two silhouettes of a man, full of bullet holes, which Hinckley had used at target practice at a Colorado shooting range, three dozen poems Hinckley had written on everything from suicide to lost love, and the infamous confession letter he left for Jody Foster. Hinckley had written, Jody, I'm asking you now to please look into your heart and at least give me the chance with this historic deed to gain your respect and love. The prosecution made compelling points, distilling the case to simple facts. 
Hinckley had practiced at a target range, loaded his pistol with explosive ammunition, awaited his opportunity, and attempted to murder his victims. Now they rested their case. Hinckley's lawyer, Vincent Fuller, now had to counter all of these truths. A commanding, charismatic speaker, Fuller told the court that Hinckley was mentally disturbed when he committed his crimes. But more importantly, Fuller would show the jury that Hinckley did not appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions. But beyond proving that he was mentally ill, Fuller also wanted to humanize Hinckley, to allow the jury to empathize with his life as an outsider who never found real connections with the world or with other people. Fuller argued that the letter to Jodie Foster alone strongly suggested that John Hinckley was utterly detached from reality and had no emotional or cognitive appreciation of it. To demonstrate this, Fuller called Hinckley's 56-year-old mother, Joanne, to the stand. He asked her about John's childhood and home life, as well as his letters from Texas Tech about his imaginary girlfriend, Lynn. Joanne was distraught when describing the events of John's life that led to the shooting. She felt responsible for her son's troubles. She tried to help him through tough love, and that very well may have pushed him over the edge. Joanne told the jury that when she and Hinckley's father refused to let him come home in early March, his last link with the real world was severed. Hinckley's mother was visibly upset and remorseful when she said that John seemed to be going downhill and becoming more withdrawn, more antisocial, and more down on himself. We didn't know what was wrong, but we knew something wasn't right. We wanted John to be self-supporting, to stand on his own two feet. The harder we tried to push him from us, the harder he tried to stay. Hinckley's father, 57-year-old John Hinckley Sr., or Jack, followed his wife to the stand. The typically stoic businessman broke down when he recalled the ultimatum he was encouraged to give his son by Hinckley's doctor. Get a job or we'll cut you off. Jack said, In looking back on that, I'm sure it was the greatest mistake in my life. We forced him out at a time he just could not cope. I am the cause of John's tragedy. I wish to God that I could trade places with him right now. Next, Fuller called the very doctor who had pushed the Hinckleys to cut their son off. Dr. John Hopper of Evergreen, Colorado, took the stand, wearing aviator glasses. Hopper started treating Hinckley just five months before the assassination attempt. He testified that although he originally thought Hinckley was an unmotivated kid who needed behavioral therapy, he now recognized that Hinckley was suffering from serious mental illness. He admitted to the court that he had not perceived the seriousness of Hinckley's condition. As part of his treatment, Hopper had asked Hinckley to write an autobiography in November of 1980, just a few months before the assassination attempt. In it, Hinckley wrote of, quote, a relationship I had dreamed about that went absolutely nowhere. He also said that his mind was on the breaking point. 
Hopper again expressed regret over missing the seriousness of the warnings in these writings. With Hopper casting real doubt on Hinckley's mental fitness, defense attorney Fuller knew it was time to show the jury just how unstable John Hinckley Jr. really was. He had to present the subject of John's irrational obsession, the entire reason for his crimes. Jodie Foster herself was about to tell all. Coming up, the attorneys conclude their cases and the jury delivers their verdict. But the sentence is not where John Hinckley Jr.'s story ends. Now back to the story. In the early summer of 1982, 27-year-old John Hinckley Jr. stood trial for the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan. The jury was tasked with determining whether Hinckley truly understood his actions or if he was legally insane. The prosecution presented many witnesses who laid out a clear case for Hinckley's decision-making capability. But the defense witnesses painted a very convincing picture of Hinckley's severe mental illness. To clinch his point, defense attorney Vincent Fuller introduced the primary source of Hinckley's obsession to the jury, Jody Foster. A few months prior to the trial, Hinckley had threatened not to cooperate with his own defense unless Foster appeared. In a concession, defense attorney Fuller arranged with Foster's lawyer to have the actress testify in a closed, recorded session with only the judge, lawyers, and Hinckley present. The tape of the session was now introduced into evidence at the trial. As Fuller inserted the VHS tape, the jury leaned forward in their seats. The courtroom fell silent. Hinckley himself seemed anxious with anticipation. In the next moment, the young actress popped onto the television monitor. When asked to describe Hinckley's correspondence to her, she called them love-type letters and recalled one in particular, a poem dated March 6, 1981. It included the line, Jodie Foster, love, just wait. I will rescue you very soon. Please cooperate. J.W.H. Defense attorney Fuller asked whether she'd ever seen a message like that before. Foster replied, Yes. In the movie Taxi Driver, the character Travis Bickle sends the character Iris a rescue letter. Murmurs of shocked acknowledgement were heard throughout the courtroom. Throughout the session, Foster refused to address or even look at John Hinckley. The attorneys asked if she had ever seen him, responded to him, or invited his approaches. She answered no to all. On the tape, Fuller asked, How would you describe your relationship with John Hinckley? Foster simply replied, I don't have any relationship with John Hinckley. At this bit of information, Hinckley hurled a ballpoint pen at the young actress and yelled, I'll get you, Foster! Back in the courtroom, Hinckley viewed the footage along with the jury. Visibly stressed by his taped outburst, Hinckley suddenly leapt up and fled the courtroom, pursued by federal marshals. Although his departure was disruptive, 
To Fuller, it was more proof of how unstable Hinckley continued to be. To further emphasize Hinckley's violent mood swings, Fuller called another doctor to the stand, psychiatric expert Dr. William Carpenter. With a gray beard and shoulder-length hair, the psychiatrist was described by reporters as looking like Father Time. Carpenter was a professor at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and a specialist in schizophrenia. He evaluated Hinckley after the shooting. Carpenter testified that after spending 45 hours with Hinckley, he concluded the defendant undoubtedly suffered from schizophrenia. Carpenter believed Hinckley displayed four major symptoms of mental illness, an incapacity to have an ordinary emotional arousal, autistic retreat from reality, depression including suicidal features, and an inability to work or establish social bonds. Carpenter pointed to Hinckley's imagined relationship with Jodie Foster. As it developed over time, the idea took on a quality of a delusion. Carpenter explained that Hinckley had developed false beliefs that were not shaken by evidence to the contrary and that, in fact, he was basing many actions of his life on. Fuller then asked Carpenter to summarize the day of the shooting, starting with Hinckley's letter to Jodie Foster in the hotel, through the time of the assassination attempt. What was Hinckley's frame of mind immediately before the shooting? Carpenter answered, well, his mental state is predominantly one of despair, depression, and a sense of the end of things. At the same time, the wish for realization of this relationship with Jodie Foster is on his mind in terms of how his doing this act will unite him with Jodie Foster. Fuller then asked what everyone in the courtroom wanted an answer to, the decisive factor in Hinckley's fate. Did Hinckley understand the consequences of his actions? Carpenter replied, My opinion is that he did have a substantial lack of capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct on March 30th. Some spectators in the room could be seen nodding their heads in agreement with this definitive opinion from the defense. After Carpenter stepped down from the stand, Fuller then invited two additional doctors to corroborate Carpenter's medical opinion. Dr. David Baer agreed with Carpenter's diagnosis of psychosis. He testified that Hinckley thought Travis Bickle was talking to him and that shooting the president was the very opposite of logic. Then Baer followed this diagnosis with tangible medical proof. He suggested that a CAT scan of Hinckley's brain after the shooting was indicative of schizophrenia, which further corroborated Carpenter's testimony. Dr. Ernst Prelinger, a Yale psychologist, testified about giving Hinckley a psychological test called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It assesses personality traits and psychopathology, Hinckley scored near the peak of abnormality on the inventory. Prelinger explained that the chances that someone who received such a high score was not suffering from mental illness were one out of a million. Over objections from the prosecution, Fuller closed his defense with a screening of the movie Taxi Driver. 
Hinckley, along with the jury, was riveted. According to a New York Times report, he only put his head down and his hands over his eyes during a scene in which Jodie Foster's prostitute character slow danced with her pimp. After approximately eight weeks total of appeals, motions, and rebuttals, each attorney delivered his closing statement. On the prosecution side, U.S. Attorney Roger Edelman argued that Hinckley was a dangerous but ultimately rational man who deserved to go to prison for the rest of his life. Edelman had the actual gun used in the shootings in his hand as he emphasized, this man shot down in the street James Brady, who still carries a bullet in his brain. Hinckley's defense attorney, Vincent Fuller, drove home the points that Hinckley was mentally ill and deserved psychiatric treatment, not imprisonment. His recounting of Hinckley's lonely and pathetic life made Hinckley hysterically cry at the defense table, keeping his face in his hands. Fuller said, In his own mind, the defendant had two compelling reasons to do what he did— to terminate his own existence and to accomplish his ideal union with Jodie Foster, whether in this world or the next. I submit these are the acts of a totally irrational individual, driven and motivated by his own world, locked in his own mind. The jury watched both lawyers intently, no one knew which way they would go. Was Hinckley a violent, selfish criminal in control of his actions, or a sick, mentally ill man who had lost control? The entire world waited four days for the jurors to decide on a verdict. Then, on June 21, 1982, it was finally returned. After Judge Barrington Parker reviewed the decision, it took over an hour to settle the commotion in the courtroom of press, spectators, and lawyers. At 7.50 p.m., 22-year-old jury foreman Lawrence H. Coffey rose to hand Judge Parker the verdict. Parker announced that the jury had sided with the defense and found John not guilty by reason of insanity on all 13 charges related to his assassination attempt of Ronald Reagan. The government failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Hinckley was sane when he attacked the president. The jury stated that there was clear and convincing evidence that Hinckley suffered from a severe chronic mental disorder and that he remained a danger to himself as well as a danger to others. As the verdict was read, Hinckley wiped his eyes with shaking hands. Both Jack and Joanne Hinckley wept openly. The judge then committed Hinckley to St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Mentally Ill for an indefinite period. There, he would have the right to request a rehearing on his mental status every six months. The American public was outraged by the ruling. An ABC News poll showed that three-quarters of those surveyed felt justice had not been done. 
This negative reaction triggered an immediate review of how the insanity defense would be applied in future trials. In response to Hinckley's case, the Delaware legislature passed a law providing a guilty but mentally ill verdict alternative. A defendant who received this ruling is sentenced as guilty even when found legally disturbed. Proposals to abolish or restrict the insanity defense in other states soon followed. In just three years, two-thirds of the country placed the burden on the defense to prove insanity, while 11 additional states adopted the guilty but mentally ill verdict. Currently, Idaho, Montana, Utah, and Kansas have no insanity defense whatsoever. On June 22, 1982, the day following his verdict, 27-year-old John Hinckley Jr. was admitted to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. At first, he continued on his obsessive path, ruminating over Jodie Foster. When one doctor asked what he was thinking about, Hinckley answered, Jodie, 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 and then there's Jodie. Hinckley also continued his habit of letter-writing, although now he wrote to serial killers, including Ted Bundy and Charles Manson. He also was caught keeping photos of a celebrity in his room, which was strictly forbidden. By the late 1990s, however, Hinckley's parents claimed that their son had made significant progress in his recovery. He worked a clerical job within the hospital and was allowed to walk freely through the institution. He was taking art classes, volunteered at a local library, and was even caring for a small colony of cats living on the grounds of the hospital. Hinckley also developed a romantic relationship with another patient, 38-year-old Leslie DeVoe a severe schizophrenic herself, had murdered her own 10-year-old daughter. DeVoe was blonde and athletic. Hinckley, who never had a real romantic relationship, nervously approached her at a Halloween mixer. He said, I'd ask you to dance if I danced. Soon he started writing her love songs rather than Jodie Foster. Given Hinckley's progress, his parents eventually fought for greater freedoms for their son. In 1999, 44-year-old Hinckley was given permission to have supervised visits with his parents outside of the hospital. However, he did temporarily lose some of his privileges the following year after a book on Jodie Foster was found in his possession. Then, on December 17, 2003, 48-year-old Hinckley was granted unsupervised visits with his parents. And finally, in the summer of 2016, after 34 years of treatment, Hinckley was deemed fit for release to live with his 90-year-old mother in Williamsburg, Virginia. He was 61 years old. Many Americans were not pleased about Hinckley's liberation, including local residents of Williamsburg and Reagan's own family. Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis, said Hinckley getting out was like saying there's an expiration date on violent tendencies. This outrage resurfaced once again when, in November of 2018, a judge ruled that Hinckley could begin living on his own. 
However, Hinckley's release is not without extensive conditions. He must remain in treatment with mental health professionals. He may not live more than 75 miles from Williamsburg. He may not contact Jodie Foster or any of his other victims. And he may not knowingly travel to places where current or former presidents will be present. Violations of any of these terms, among others, could send him back to the hospital. So while Hinckley may currently be a free man, he will never truly escape his past or the consequences. Now that you've heard the case against him, decide for yourself. Was John Hinckley Jr. truly insane, unable to determine his actions were wrong? Or was he a fame-seeking criminal who manipulated the jury? Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Allison Morgan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Vanessa Richardson.